0: everyone and welcome to Risky Business episode 322. My name is Patrick Gray. On this week's show we got a cracking interview with Australian National University Professor Hugh White about the charges brought against alleged Chinese military hackers by the US Department of Justice. Is it going to do anything? That one's coming up after the news. This week's show is brought to you by Tenable Network Security and Jack Daniel of Tenable stops by in this week's sponsor interview to talk about password managers in light of the eBay breach. Is it time we really started encouraging people to use them? Jack thinks it is. But before we get into all of that, it is time for a check of the week's news headlines with Adam Boileau and Adam, eBay got pwned.
1: Yeah, definitely. the uh, The stories are coming out that about three months ago, uh, some eBay employees got themselves uh, fished, by the look of it, uh, resulted in a break into the eBay corporate network and subsequent leak of eBay's user database. So uh, names, email addresses, contact details, and uh, hashed passwords for 145 million people.
0: Bit of confusion as to whether or not uh, they were actually, uh, you know, hashed or encrypted, like the, you know, the Adobe. Leaked passwords were actually encrypted, not hashed. Um, but eBay has since confirmed that they use proprietary hashing and advanced salting technology.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, uh, that's not really what you look for in a hashing algorithm—is proprietariness. But I guess we'll take their, you know, as you say, their crack PR team's word uh, word for it. And uh, you know, whether or not we see them, uh, you know, the actual passwords uh, turn up somewhere so we can validate exactly how they're hashed. Um, until then we'll just uh, we'll have to go with that but and man this is a this is a pretty big leak yeah it sure
0: is now what's interesting is they're talking about 140 million active users in the case of the adobe breach they lost data for 38 million active accounts you know how many accounts were actually in that database
1: that was well 150 million right
0: 152 million so ebay's not actually telling us how many accounts got popped just 140 you know, just hundred and forty uh, million active ones. I mean, how many people have actually set up accounts and then just not use them? I mean, we could be talking six hundred, seven hundred million. It's a lot.
1: Actually, that, that's a very good point. I guess we will. We won't know until we actually see the uh, see the data turn up on some forum somewhere.
0: Yeah. Well, that's the next question: is do we know who was behind this? What they're going to do with that data? Do you think they just grabbed this because they couldn't get at the more exciting stuff like PayPal account data, or you know, what, what what's the general feeling? Is there one yet?
1: Oh, I see. I don't have any, any specific information. And we, um, and we haven't seen the data being, being used at eBay themselves are saying that they haven't seen any, you know, increase in fraudulent activity. And there doesn't seem to be any suggestion that it did extend as far as PayPal, which I mean, if you were a hacker and you're financially motivated and you bust into eBay, obviously moving laterally towards PayPal would be, uh, you know, what you were going to do. So yeah, it's, it is, it is hard to say. We'll have to wait and see, you know, you know, they're not saying that they've got, you know, anything much beyond the, the details we've discussed, uh, you know, but. You know, incident response is difficult. They've got Mandiant in, yeah. in there. You know, maybe we will, you know, we'll see some further information later on. But, you oh, have had, from-
0: you know, just even the eBay accounts alone, I mean, given that it's a platform that relies so heavily on trust, I can think of a million ways to make money out of it. I mean, I'd just, you know, jack someone, some reputable vendor's account and, you know, start, you know, start selling fake stuff.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, obviously there are some options for monetizing that there. And, mm. uh, yeah, we will. we'll just have to see how bad that gets.
0: Krebs is carrying a pretty funny story. Uh, you know, there's people offering to sell some of this eBay data for, you know, all your bitcoins. And uh, yeah, probably not actually eBay data there, guys. You're probably just going to get a nice, uh, you know, tarball full of,
1: I don't know. <laughs> yeah, probably. They're wanting um, uh, 1.4 bitcoins, about uh, 700 US dollars at the moment, uh, for uh, some of the data out of the eBay leak. But uh, yeah, Krebs is uh, pretty dismissive of the likelihood, as uh, I think anyone saying would probably be.
0: <laughs> Indeed. Now, of course, last week saw the arrest of around 100 people. Uh, worldwide for using this uh, Black Shades Trojan, Krebs also has a write-up on that.
1: Yeah, this is a, it's quite a funny story. It got quite a lot of uh, mainstream media coverage as being you know big sort of cybercrime takedown. Whereas you know the reality here is that uh, Black Shades was a, a piece of you know commercial Trojan software, largely being used by sort of you know unskilled recreational uh, you know attackers who wanted to you know Trojan their um, you know enemies at high school or something. Um, uh, Hang on, hang on, I'm confused because I've been
0: watching the news and it's an incredibly sophisticated cyber attack tool, isn't it? It's an incredibly
1: sophisticated, you know, $40 cyber attack tool <laughs> that you can use uh, to, uh, you know, Trojan other people's. I mean, this, you know, common garden remote access Trojan. Uh, and, of course, they were selling it openly. And uh, it looks like uh, the feds either owned the forums that were being used to sell it or were running the forums that were being used to sell it in the first place. <laughs> uh, and then uh, have now cracked down and uh, arrested a bunch of people based on, you know, the, uh, the payment details and stuff that they used to buy this Trojan. If you're buying Trojans on forums, kids, don't use your real name in it. A- Dress and real yeah, credit card probably number. Probably not the best uh, idea. Dear. But um, the the real funny thing, of course, is that the forums are now filled with uh, lots of uh, lots of QQing from people who've been uh, you know had their all their computers seized by uh, law enforcement and are having a very bad day, having bought their forty dollars trojan you know several mm. years ago uh, and used and it now, twice. And now where...
0: Johnny wants his PlayStation back. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. But no, it's funny how much drama there's got in the mainstream media, though. Uh, you know, when really in the grand scheme of things, and especially in light of you know other things that are going on the industry at the moment, really very, very small change.
0: Yeah, yeah, well, that's true. Uh, Now, of course, the other big ticket news item uh, over the last week is the US deciding to charge in absentia five members of the, uh, you know, PLA unit 61398. This is the unit that, of course, was unmasked in Mandiant's APT1 report around February last year. Uh, You know, the US has actually printed up wanted posters for these guys, and I can't really see that it's going to do much, and neither can our feature guest uh, this
1: week, Professor Hugh White. But uh, what are your thoughts on this, Adam? Well, it's, 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 it's a funny story. I mean, the idea that you end up with these, uh, you know, FBI wanted posters with a sort of very retro wanted font, uh, you know, with pictures of, of Chinese military guys, uh, wanted for, for hacking. I mean, it, it's funny on a number of levels and interesting on a number of levels, I suppose. I mean, the, it's a, a fairly straight up, you know, sort of, um, Escalation of the dialogue we've seen between the US and China about cyber things, um, you know, and actually naming, you know, naming and shaming, I guess, is the intent here to try and you know, put faces and actually, you know, individually target uh, some of the people involved, uh, you know, in China. And, you know, you can kind of see, I mean, people who roll in response, uh, you know, uh, it's a very real thing, right? The Chinese are in their hacking stuff. But as we've seen with, uh, you know, thanks to Edward Snowden, the yeah, Americans are also very much doing the same, if not worse. Um, mm. And so it's a, you know, it's a difficult uh, thing to do for that exact reason. I and mean, whether we would see, you know, tit for tat uh, from the Chinese, you know, naming, um you know the sorts of uh, i guess uh, well i mean you
0: know then the next the very next news item we're discussing is uh, you know the NSA has been installing you know, all sorts of implants on equipment destined for all sorts of parts of the world. So I wonder when we'll see a Chinese press conference when they're going to put, like, Keith Alexander and the CEO of Cisco on wanted posters, you know. Two million yuan. Uh, <laughs> wanted, dead or alive, you know. It's just, yeah. it's just posturing. Look, we'll get, all, get to all of that in the feature interview this week. But, yes, indeed, the uh, NSA has been installing spyware on US-made hardware screen, the headlines. But, again, I mean, this isn't something that we find surprising.
1: No, it's not surprising, and the uh, the best thing, of course, about this story though is there is a great photo of the NSA guys actually unboxing, uh, you know, a Cisco router, and you know, photo of the workstation where they install the implants, and that's kind of fun. Uh, you know, makes it <laughs> makes it a little bit more real. Actually, you know, seeing them going about their job. Yeah,
0: seeing just yeah, pretty. Regular people doing irregular things. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, China, perhaps in response to this, uh, you know, wanted poster thing, uh, has uh, upped security checks on, you know, uh, equipment uh, from the United States. Apparently they're uh, applying a very scrutinous eye over, over equipment. Now, it looks like they're just
1: trying to give US companies a hard time, but, you, you know, it's hardly surprising. Well, it's completely understandable. I mean, you know, when there's direct evidence that their hardware uh, and you know s- software supply chain is being attacked by their adversary, I mean, absolutely you would do it. Of course, the corollary to that is actually checking that your equipment hasn't been backdoored and does what you expect it to. That's very, very difficult. And if they manage to figure out a way to do that, I hope they would share it with the rest well, of Well, <laughs> I, I should mention that they're not actually talking about <laughs>
0: unboxing stuff and X-raying it stuff. They're doing more of these sort of high-level intelligence uh, analyses of of US companies, much in the same way that the US did to Huawei. So it does seem like a bit of a middle finger. Uh, Now, also, China has said, you know what, we're not going to roll Win8 because you ended, you know, you ended support for XP. So you'll probably just do that with Win8. So we're not interested. This, again, seems like a raised middle finger in the direction of the United States.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the idea that you would not run windows 8 because you're worried about it becoming end of life i mean clearly it's bollocks, right i mean the, all software is going to become end of life at some point and you just deal with it right you plan for it and off you go and oh you know of all of the uh, you know all of the vendors microsoft has a very clear and very you know sort of um, you know well supported software life cycle you know i wouldn't have thought that would be a particularly good reason but no it's not about that it's about uh, you know having uh, some degree of um, you know sort of sovereign control over your software stack and you know, to push development of a domestic OS, I imagine.
0: Yeah, uh, well, let's you know, see how that goes, imagine. guys.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's a couple of domestic Linux distributions, but I guess you know, that's they need a little better than that to mm. run the entire Chinese government.
0: Yeah, maybe they could look to the North Koreans for, what is it, Red Star Linux. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> not, that's, yeah, no suspicious code in that one <laughs> at all. Now, uh, Cisco CEO John Chambers not appearing on a wanted poster, but instead appearing at Mobile World Congress and appearing
1: to Barack Obama to please, please stop with the hacking. Of course, this is a reaction you know, for public consumption, I and mean, you know the fact mm-hmm. that the NSA have been back throwing Cisco you kit know, is something we knew for a while. Now there's a picture of it actually happening. You know they have to be seen to be doing something, <laughs> uh, and in this case, you know writing a um, you know an emo mail to uh, to Barack Obama seems to be about the extent of their uh, of their response. <laughs> exactly, dear Barack, please stop with the hacking. Kate, thanks. Bye. Yeah. Yeah. Well, please stop with the leaking. The pictures of you hacking our stuff is just like (laughs) super embarrassing, you know.
0: Now, some time Uh, ago, we spoke about a reform bill uh, that was before the US, I think the US Senate, was it? I don't know how their system works. It's all very strange. Uh, But there was a bill, uh, you know, working, bubbling through their system of government that would have seen an end to the uh, bulk metadata collection. Uh, Interestingly enough, a loophole seems to have been inserted into (laughs) said bill at the last minute. I know I'm shocked, Uh, which would basically mean, yeah, they can still do targeted metadata surveillance, but there's a pretty loose definition of what targeted actually means,
1: you know, we want to look at these 10 million people, you know. Yeah. <laughs> which, you know, I suppose is less than three or 400 million, but um, yeah, this does seem a bit ridiculous. I mean, the idea that you'd have an act that's specifically designed to curtail bulk collection and then have it just sort of legitimise ever so slightly less bulk collection.
0: Uh, oh, there's a great but... quote in this piece, which uh, comes to us via Wired from a guy called Julian Sanchez, who's a researcher at the Cato Institute. He says, as long as there's some kind of target, they don't call that bulk collection, even if you're still collecting millions of records. To any normal person, he adds, that's still pretty bulky.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, nice, nicely put. Mm.
0: Staying with Wired and Andy Greenberg has written uh, a great piece about a one of these guys who's a, like a technical advisor to The Intercept, which is, you know, Glenn Greenwald's big, uh, hey, I've got a big pile of docs, so I'm going to start a business and make a lot of money out of it <laughs> uh, enterprise. Uh, there's this tool called OnionShare created by this bloke, Micah Lee, which, uh, you know, interestingly enough, I've been really looking at these types of technologies and something like this has been desperately needed for quite a while. You know, things like uh, SecureDrop are great if you can find three different admins and you have budget to run stuff in three different colos. This is a very simple, Tor-based uh, uh, way to anonymously drop files to people like journalists, whistleblowing authorities, things like that. I think we're going to see a lot more of this tech, but this is certainly a good step in the right direction.
1: Yeah, it has. Uh, it's quite an interesting tool. It's um, you know, straight up. I'm going to run a web server behind a Tor hidden service. You know, server. Particular directory uh, via Tor Hidden Service such that anyone can get it given the hidden service address in a regular web browser. And it's very, very simple, very straightforward. You run it up, person receives the file, uh, having you know, you sent them the link via some other channel, uh, and then you tear it down again and it's gone. Like no infrastructure, no maintenance, uh, and you know, solves the exact immediate problem that you have in front of you. And that's you know, the kind of tool that that us hackers like. You know, single purpose tool that solves one problem, you know, is exactly what you need. And uh, I think, you know, for that scenario, this is a, a good example. Indeed, indeed. Now Silent Circle have just
0: taken 30 million in funding because uh their black phone thing apparently is uh picking up all sorts of interest so we're seeing uh you know a lot of you know real hard dollars going into anonymity and privacy uh companies this is uh I think this is probably the first investment of many we're going to see in the space
1: yeah, I think this is, you know, it's going to be the new, uh, the new growth sector. I think this sort of, um, you know, privacy protecting secure communications, um, you know, sort of, uh, technology products and I mean, Silent Circle have a, a bit of a head start over some of the other players by virtue of, you know, doing it for a while already. But, um, it's quite interesting to see that they are getting, you know, 30 million dollars, I suppose, in, in the context of, you know silicon valley vc is not a whole bunch but they can you know they've got a real product coming that will uh, you know i imagine uh, you know be much more widespread and hopefully more uh, you know even more robust than presumably it was going to be anyway uh, with this kind of level of funding
0: now it is a good thing that money is going towards people like the uh, silent circle guys who who certainly know a thing or two about crypto because there's an awful lot of apps out there that promise security promise secrecy and don't deliver uh, another piece From Wired talking about some of these apps like uh, Whisper and Secret, which basically say, yeah, we're totally going to keep you secure from the man unless the man asks.
1: Yeah, and that's pretty, pretty disingenuous, isn't it? To have a, you know. The, well, they put that the, in the fine print, you know. <laughs> well, exactly. And that's what Andy Greenberg's write up here is about the fact that the terms of service for a number of these, um, you know, sort of secure anonymous communication. And, and uh, in this case, uh, some of these services, Whisper, for example, is specifically promoted for whistleblowing, but then has terms of service that are in the small print say, unless we get a subpoena right which is exact same position you are with every other online service in the US but to go out and promote your service for these things and then mm. you know weasel in the small print even though you're legally required to you know be weaselable yeah, you know, it just seems disingenuous.
0: Well, I just think the idea that you operate an anonymity service is kind of nuts when you've got these decentralized things like Tor, which are very well suited to creating tools like Onion Share, which, you know, we're starting to see now, you know, do away with this model where you've got a third party actually, you know, handling the information. Um, you know, you don't actually need a server anymore when you've got stuff like Tor. Anyone can spring up a hidden service straight out from their desktop, even from an added environment. So, yeah, I just think... Apps like these need to go and die in a fire, basically, because they're just making all sorts of silly promises. Uh, Speaking of, uh, you know, (laughs) speaking of online services that did promise anonymity but did die in a fire uh, there's a fantastic piece <laughs> no, on segue. the guardian yeah i know hey, segue foo um later <laughs> leveson who's the guy who ran lava bit which was edward snowden's you know better known as uh, edward snowden's uh, email service <laughs> has written a great little piece for the guardian about how he came to his decision to shut down lava bit
1: and the legal processes uh, that were involved and it's you know it's really worth a read um, I know when we were first covering, uh, you know, the Lava Bit story, you know, some of the aspects of the way that the, uh, the case had gone down, you know, seemed a little strange. I and mean, we, you yeah, know, we now we know anger. how strange they were. Uh, well, exactly. We, I think at the time we reported, oh, he, you know, ended up representing himself in court. And you or I were, you and I were both a bit sort of, well, you know, that's not going to go well for you, guy. Like, you know, what sort of idiot would attempt to represent himself? with such complicated issues. Anyway, he goes into the, uh, the story of the illegal saga. And now you understand why he ends up representing himself and why, you know, the, well, all of the other the you know, other aspects of the the, you know, the legal process that he went through, and and like Kafka esque, doesn't even begin to describe how <laughs> no, ridiculous it, it is. And it's um, uh, you know, it's certainly a good read if only so you understand, you know, kind of quite how badly these things can go.
0: Yeah, and it's impossible to read it without walking away with uh, you know, some pretty mad respect for the guy uh, for handling it the way that he did, which was, you know, it really does seem like he went into the whole thing looking down the barrel of uh, some serious trouble from the government and uh, the thing that was first and foremost in his mind was how to best protect his users. So, uh, good for you, Ladar
1: Levison. Yeah, I concur.
0: Yeah, uh, apparently there's a new cryptocurrency on the block which is picking up a great deal of traction. I mean, it's similar to Bitcoin, but it offers a great deal more anonymity. It's called Darkcoin and it's, uh, I mean, look, they're all pretty volatile, but it looks like this one might be getting a little traction?
1: Yeah, it certainly does look like it. The, the key difference between uh, Darkcoin and Bitcoin, it seems, is that uh, Darkcoin has a, some kind of transaction mixing process in which... Uh, transactions that are going through the peer-to-peer network uh, and into the into the global ledger are actually kind of mixed together during that initial phase so that you, you sort of have built-in laundering to some extent, which of course is the key criticism of, of Bitcoin's lack of on- anonymity, right? the fact mm. that there is a, a global ledger of every transaction that you can follow about. Uh, and I think that is a you know, the the value of currencies like Bitcoin and Darkcoin and are a direct function of their utility in the market. They don't have any you know, intrinsic value as such. Well, and given um, that
0: uh, cryptocurrencies are mostly designed to buy illegal shit, then anonymity is going to be
1: pretty important to that utility. Well, exactly, yeah, and so having a currency that you know does focus on anonymity as well as uh, you know the other aspects that cryptocurrencies are good at, I think you know does you know makes it stand out a bit, and you know people do appear to be using it. Uh, It also has the benefit for some of us that uh, mining it is not necessarily going to require ASICs or you know serious Mm. high-end hardware, so you might actually have a chance to mine some coins. And I can I can already tell that I'm going to cop a whole
0: bunch of angry emails from Bitcoin fanboys saying it's not just used (laughs) for illegal stuff, and guys, Uh. I know that you know, but anyway. (laughs) I don't want to argue about it, Uh, okay? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, now, one of the six million people who's owned Melbourne IT has been caught. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, two of them, two two people have been uh, caught up. Uh, they've been arrested over a 2012 attack on Melbourne IT, but, you know, there's been a few. Yeah, which years one, since right? Then. Yeah, exactly, right? So, a uh, 40 year old West Australian man and an 18 year old uh, resident of Penrith uh, from New South Wales have been charged by the AFP, so they're all off to court. You can check out this week's show notes to have a read of that. Uh, looks like some. DDoS malware groups are finally getting around to the idea that SNMP is a pretty good way to roll, according to Dark Reading.
1: Yeah, 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 this is your fault too, because you've been, you know, on this on this bandwagon that <laughs> everyone's going to start moving to reflected, you know, amplified uh, S NIPDOS, and here it is. They must have been listening to risky biz, so I blame you. Careful, man. I mean, with the way the legal system works these
0: days, <laughs> I might wind up extradited to the uh, United States to face charges under the CFAA. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, and you know, I had a chat um, to Mark Eisenbach of Arbor Networks. Um, that was a sponsor interview for the Ossert coverage. If you haven't checked out the Ossert coverage, do. Uh, go have a look. Risky.biz slash OSCERT, A-U-S-C-E-R-T. There are 17 pieces of audio there uh, that you can peruse at your leisure. Uh, and he was saying, you know, really when we see stuff start to move is when these groups that take DDoS capabilities and then build them into malware toolkits, that's when it becomes a serious problem. So... Could be just around the corner, guys. That's going to be. Yeah, fun.
1: It, it certainly looks like it. I mean, in this case, you know, Prolexic are saying they've seen some weaponized, you know, some tools being used uh, to make this a very straightforward process reveal, and you know the, that, you know, process weaponization is well underway. So yeah, we're only going to see it uh, get worse, and you know, we'll peak in a little while. I'm sure. Internet weapon. <laughs> Internet weapon.
2: Internet <laughs> weapon.
0: Now, staying with SNMP, and uh, I think some of the guys at Rapid Seven have done some interesting uh, work on what is it like information leak leakage vulnerabilities or what's going on here?
1: Otherwise, uh, well, this is pretty comedy stuff. It's uh, a number of devices which, uh, when queried via SNMP using you know, default public read-only credentials, uh, return amongst other things their password hashes. Oh, um, which you know that's just. <laughs> I mean, that's funny. I mean, we've used SNMP for for you know leaking information about things we're trying to attack for you know forever, pretty much. Um, you know, it's not uh, unusual when if you you know if you, for example, pull process listings off Unix boxes uh, via SNMP, which is one of my favorite tricks. Then often there's credentials in the in the process list output. But But uh, to actually store your password hashes for an embedded device such that it's retrievable by a public SMB does seem like kind of of a dumb idea.
0: uh, It's sort of like the device goes, hey, what's the password to access me? And you go, I don't know. What is the password to access you? (laughs) (laughs) And it goes, here it is. Uh, Oh, dear. Just bad. Bad,
1: Yeah. So we're talking about a couple of... Embedded devices and some load balancers and things, and I imagine there they will turn up uh, a bunch of other things, a bunch of other devices that do similar sorts of, of stupidity. But uh, the guys at Rapid7 have added modules for this into Metasploit, so you can, you know, kind of uh, you know script kiddie your way to to victory in yet another way.
0: Yay! Now, XMPP is going to mandate encryption across XMPP uh, messaging services like Jabber and whatnot. This is a good thing. Uh, You would think it sort of ties into the whole no more free intercepts thing.
1: Yes, exactly. So this is a a move by the uh, standards foundation, the XMPP standards foundation that are sort of the design committee behind XMPP, the protocol uh, to say you can only or you should only run XMPP chat services with Uh, You know, uh, crypto enabled, and they're saying at the moment SSL. We're not going to bother. You know, you don't have to check certificates. You just got to crypto it. So you know, it's baby steps along the way. But of course, XMPP can be run by anyone uh, on anything. So there's no guarantee that uh, you know whatever service you happen to use is going to crypto things. But it is a step in the right direction. And you know, as you say, it. um, It's a principled stand. God damn it. Yes, 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 (laughs) yes, it is. And of course, you know, anything that encrypts, you know, one more bit on the internet is one less bit that is a free intercept. So yeah, it's good.
0: Now, uh, there's a really bit, interesting bit of research from the MIT Media Lab that occasionally, you know, pumps out just interesting stuff. And they've done a whole bunch of metadata analysis on documents like Office files, PDFs, images, things like that. And they've used that. They've done some visualizations around that to actually work out relationships between different collaborators and stuff. And it just really shows you how much uh, intelligence can be gleaned from simple file metadata.
1: Yeah, it is. It's an interesting, uh, as uh, well. There's an interesting write-up on CNET, and that's a, a write-up of this tool, uh, immersion that uh, the Media Lab have come up with, and it m- would be well worth, you know, pumping some of your own mail spool through it and, and having a look at what it can find out about you or some of the, um, some of the documents you have lying around your desk, and it might be a useful thing to convince, you know, your boss or whoever else uh, is concerned that, you know, for example, scrubbing mail metadata at the border or, you know, being aware of what's in document metadata, um, uh, before you ship them off to your customers or whatever uh, might actually be a good thing. So, uh, you know, useful, yeah. useful for that.
0: Or at least having some sort of policy uh, would make an idea.
1: Oh, now uh, <laughs> some drama with the EMV, Chip and Pin.
0: Uh, not all is well in paradise in the Chip and Pin Nirvana.
1: Yeah, so we've seen uh, you know the the latest update on the, the work coming out of uh, of Cambridge in the UK, Ross Anderson's team, which have you know long been the, the people doing research about EMV. They've come up with a couple of, uh, of new things to talk about. One of them is a um, an implementation flaw in a number of the uh, EMV uh, processing you know uh, terminals and that sort of thing that uh, generate random numbers poorly. Uh, well, I know I'm but- shocked. Oh well, well, exactly that. I, I was pausing to make shocked face. Uh, you can't see it over IP, but uh, I was. And the second uh, issue that they're discussing is a um, uh, more of a protocol level vulnerability that may, in the longer term, turn out to be uh, you know actually quite interesting. A problem, tm. It uh, may, well, yeah, yeah, but um, <laughs> it basically involves you know an attacker who's on the wire between a terminal and the acquiring bank being able to uh, you know manipulate some of the. Um, uh, challenge response process during the MV to be able to then subsequently, uh, you know, carry out an attack. So it's certainly not a, a world ending uh, kind of issue yet. And I mean, compared to mag stripes, which is, you know, where, where the US is still at, I suppose, mm. um, you know, it, it's still a massive improvement to be uh, considering thinking about rolling out. Well, I MB mean, your average crew of
0: Romanians might have a bit of trouble, you know, getting access to that wiring cabinet and knowing how to set it all up and they're going to need tools. And, you know, it's it's a much more sophisticated sort of attack than, duh, I'm going to put a mag stripe, reader on the Bloody front of the thing, they
1: Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. It, it is certainly a much more complicated attack than we're currently seeing. But on the other hand, you know, we, um, you know, this arms race always continues, and it's these little things that eventually get turned into, you know, the the next, you know, the next target.
0: Threat post brings us the. News in air quotes that enterprises are still pretty bad at uh, provisioning uh, you know user access controls uh, no surprises there but it's you know it's always interesting to read through something like that uh, so that's in the show notes ICS cert has confirmed that a public utility uh, in America did actually get owned and someone was you know right in there uh, if you're in the control system space that might be worth a look uh, Samsung is looking at iris recognition uh, functions for its new line of phones which I do find kind of interesting especially now we've proved That, you know, with an Apple iPhone 5S or whatever, you know, it is a lot more convenient to use a thumbprint than having to, uh, you know, tap in a pin every time you want to look at your email or whatever. Uh, The reason I find this interesting is because we could actually start seeing some of these biometrics chained together and actually provide us with a pretty high degree of confidence.
1: Yeah, and I think you know biometrics has a number of issues, and the uh, you know large-scale deployment of biometrics, you know, like the fingerprint scanner and the iPhone, I mean, it, it, it's taken a while, but they are actually starting to be successful. I think you know whether people will, you know, there's the there's a, well there's a number of issues with it in terms of user acceptance and you know reliability and you know, chaining together multiple biometric factors, as you suggested, you know, does improve things a lot. Um, you know, and it would be interesting to see widespread. You know, iris scanning on on phones, but that uh, you know it. Yeah, from a usability point if you're definitely an improvement I think over, mm. over pins but uh, yeah it's interesting interesting stuff until we you know of course there'll be the wonderful stories of people having their eyeballs cut out to access their phones <laughs> uh, you know in, uh, in Mexico or now something. Now you're going to lose um, a
0: finger and an eyeball, fantastic yeah. <laughs> um, Krebs uh, brings us the absolutely shocking news that you shouldn't run Adobe Shockwave which you really shouldn't because you don't actually need it out there Shockwave itself isn't sandboxed there's a lot of hubbub right now about the fact that it uses um, some you know components of adobe flash player that aren't that fantastic but honestly you're probably going to have a better time as an attacker going after shockwave instead of known bugs that are tricky to exploit on flash because yeah shockwave don't get a lot of attention (laughs) so you can go (laughs) read that one if you want um Um, we got some what is it even
1: for anymore like who, who uses shockwave it's been like when was the last time you saw a shockwave site but there's, a, there's a few still out there, you know
0: what I mean, and occasionally it's just one of those bad decisions made by a designer who just yeah. knows Shockwave and loves it. Um, <laughs> it does Flash-like things, but it's not Flash, so there are yeah. some people who use it. But yeah, just ditch that. If it's in yeah. your if it's in your enterprise bad. environment, just scoop it out. Okay, you don't yeah. actually bad. need it. Bad, bad, bad. software, and bad you should software. feel bad. <laughs> uh, there's some news here about uh, some you know bad advertising stuff, like uh, malvertising, redirecting to some Silverlight exploits again. Silverlight, really? Uh, although Netflix, right? Uh, yeah, he's,
1: a, I going to say. At least there is a reason to have Silverlight. I mean, yeah, you know, but
0: still, Netflix just, guys, what do you? Silverlight? Yeah, don't
1: don't browse the internet from your stupid TV, Jesus.
0: <laughs> uh, and of course, there's uh, also some news about some awful, awful things that Microsoft's Android uh, Outlook <laughs> app does. Uh, so, if you're a user or you manage an environment where you're using Outlook on Android, you might want to go check that out. Uh, Microsoft is working on a patch for IE8. That's an O-day. Chrome has fixed 23 security bugs. And that's it. I had to wrap those ones up pretty quick because we're running out yeah. of
1: time. <laughs> we, we did indeed, but um, I'm sure people are used to the patch. All the things rush at the end of the news anyway. They they know exactly. the story. Patch patch it all and you're good. Patch
0: all of your things. All right. Adam, that's it for the week's news, mate. Thank you very much for joining us and we'll uh, chat to you again next week.
1: Thanks, man. See you then.
0: Insomnia Securities, Adam Boileau there with a the check of the week's news headlines. And if you have pens to test and you want Mr. Beard himself working on your stuff, get in touch with the Insomnia guys. Hit up their website, insomniasec.com. Okay, it is time for this week's feature interview now with Hugh White, Professor of Strategic Studies at the Australian National University or ANU in Canberra. His work focuses primarily on Australian strategic and defence policy, Asia-Pacific security issues and global strategic affairs, especially as they influence Australia and the Asia-Pacific. He has served as an intelligence analyst with the Office of National Assessments, or ONA, as a journalist with the Sydney Morning Herald, as a senior advisor on the staffs of Defence Minister Kim Beasley and Australian Prime Minister Bob Hawke. Uh, He was a senior official in the Department of Defence, where from 1995 to 2000, he was the Deputy Secretary for Strategy and Intelligence. He was also the first director of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. He's an extremely well-respected talking head uh, and knows a great deal about an awful lot. Australian listeners would have seen him popping up all over the place uh, on TV and the like for well over a decade. So I was very happy when I managed to secure a short time Uh, with Hugh White, to really get his thoughts on the USA's decision to charge five alleged members of a PLA espionage unit, the uh, Unit 61398 of Mandiant fame. And I started off by asking him if he thinks this move to charge these five individuals is largely symbolic. Here's what he had to say.
3: Uh, Look, I think it's, it's almost by definition... It's primarily a symbolic move. I, I can't imagine that anyone in the U.S. system that believes they've got any chance at all of getting these guys in front of an American court. And so I think uh, you know their reasoning is they want to find a way to show the Chinese and perhaps more importantly Americans that they're serious about this. Um, the problem for them is that when you show you're serious by doing something which is very unlikely to succeed, you end up looking like a goose.
0: Yeah, I figure pretty much the worst they've done here is ruined these guys' uh, vacation plans to Disneyland. You know, I mean, it, it doesn't strike me that much is going to happen because of this. It's it's largely no, about that, the DOJ displaying wanted posters with their pictures on it.
3: Yeah, no, I think I think that's exactly right. I think this is a way of of uh, the Justice Department and maybe the US government more broadly feeling they're doing something about a problem or conveying the impression to others that they're doing something about a problem without actually doing it. Uh, and of course, if it, the, the more they actually do, the more they risk retaliation from China. And I think that'd be unwise to believe that China doesn't have some interesting ways of retaliating. What, what would so, those so
0: ways I, look like?
3: Well, um, you know, the most obvious thing would be to start imposing um, limitations on US companies operating in China in ways that would affect the commercial interests of those companies. Um, presumably, one of the things that's driving the government, the US government, to this, um, you know, sort of tough stance is um, at least superficially tough stance. Uh, are concerns from U.S. companies, uh, but the U.S. companies that are really deeply involved in the China market would understand that this kind of posturing doesn't necessarily get a good commercial result. Mm. Um, so I think I think it's likely to end up being counterproductive. And one of the great risks for America is that in trying to show that it's strong; it ends up showing that it's weak. Yeah. Because you you posture and you sort of beat your chest, and then it's, then you say, "Well, what's happened?" And the yeah. answer is, "Nothing's happened." Um, yeah, I mean, I,
0: I wonder how much this is about you know uh, escalation. We look back at when the you know the original report came out from Mandiant—that was February last year when Unit Six One Three Nine Eight became a sort of known yes, quantity. Sort of outed. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. And then you know the the there were meetings scheduled and things were gradually escalating. And then, of course, the Snowden documents came out. To what extent do you think? the release of all of that information uh, out of the NSA derailed uh, the US administration's plans to have this uh, talked out as an agenda item?
3: Look, I think it certainly didn't do them any good. It obviously was very hard for... uh, It made it harder for the US politically and rhetorically to castigate Beijing for a a global um, intelligence collection effort when Snowden had done so much to reveal America's own global intelligence collection effort, but I don't actually think that's the, that's the thing that's really stopped the U.S. taking effective action. I think it's more the nature of the issue. As you say, I mean, uh, if you look through last year, this was something the United States were putting right at the top of the agenda, even after the Snowden stuff broke. For example, at the end of the Sunnyland Summit between Xi Jinping and, and Obama in California in July June or July last year the U.S. briefers, you know, very much identified the cyber issue as as central and, indeed, um, the then National Security Advisor in his press briefing more or less identified this as a make-or-break issue for the U.S.-China relationship. And yet, for all of that tough talk, um, you know, they've convened a couple of working groups which everyone agrees have done nothing substantive, and now the Chinese have called them off. Um, So the the fact is the United States has already got a track record for beating its chest about this, Mm. but not actually... Not actually swinging on the vine and uh I think that um you know I think that's uh that that they're they're risking doing that again.
0: Well, what is it that they can do? Because it does strike me that yeah. China kind of has America over a barrel on this because, you know, China being the world's... I mean, what are they going to do, put tariffs on Chinese goods? It's it's not really going to do them much good. They don't really manufacture anything anymore.
3: No, <laughs> so... that's, 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 that's exactly right. Look, I, I think, you know, you put your finger on it. In the end, um, uh, it's very difficult for the United States to to um, to find ways to really punish China for Chinese conduct that the Americans don't like, which don't do equal damage um, to the United States. Mm. Uh, it and- certainly
0: strikes me too that the types of cyber-espionage that are being alleged uh, to be taking place you know, uh, are certainly within the Chinese national interest. We're talking about pulling millions of people out of poverty. We're talking about a country that cares deeply about its sovereignty, that has, you know, over its incredibly long history, been occupied by all sorts of aggressors. Uh, You know, it really does seem, at least from the Chinese perspective, to be reasonable policy. It's hard to argue against it.
3: Well, look, I think that's right. Um, I can certainly understand why the Chinese would feel they had a case to make there. But also, conversely, the argument that the Americans are now making, that is, that we might collect economic intelligence, but we don't do it for the commercial benefit of our companies, would not actually stand, I think, a very solid scrutiny of the history. Mm. If you look at the role of the United States government in supporting U.S. commercial interests, for example, U.S. oil companies um, uh, over the uh, over the decades, uh, I think the proposition that the United States has never used its national intelligence assets to support American companies would be very hard to sustain. And if you apply the same principle to the British, for example, um, or to the French, or uh, even to us
0: with Woodside and East Timor,
3: or, or, or even to us, uh, you know, that's that's not to say that they've necessarily. Been passing actual intercepted information direct to companies, but there's all sorts of ways in which uh, advantages can be can be reaped and nudges can be conveyed. So um, I, I, I think one of the problems the US has here is that it's 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 trying to it's articulate, it's trying to trying to argue that it's illegitimate for China to do something. Which a lot of people would very reasonably suspect the United States has long been doing itself,
0: mm, so it's... and
3: and and I think I think that's one of the things which is going to make it hard for the US to to, to really score any goals on this.
0: So where do we go from here, Uh, both from the Chinese perspective and from the American perspective? What needs to happen? Do we need to just accept that this is, you know, life in in a connected world, uh, that cyber espionage is going to take place and you better look after your information or it's going to be stolen? Or do you think we need to reach some sort of accord, some sort of, you know, set of rules really that define what it means to be a responsible state and what it means to be an irresponsible state when it comes to cyber espionage?
3: Well, um, it would be nice to do the latter, but I think we just have to recognise that if that's going to happen, it's not going to happen unless the United States is prepared to make some significant concessions to China. In other words, the kind of deal that could be done would not be one that's unilaterally dictated by the United States. And uh, it's not clear that the United States is actually interested in negotiating with China on this. They want China to do what America wants. So I think... um, uh, and the other point, of course, is it's not clear that the Chinese are actually willing to negotiate either. That is, whatever the United States might be able to offer to China, by way of inducements to curtail this kind of activity, would um, uh, it would need to be something that the Chinese really badly wanted. And it's not too, not too clear that the Chinese are necessarily prepared to do that. So although it would be nice to do the latter, I think the most likely thing, is this is something we're going to have to live with,
0: so it's going to be and, the and, uh, it's going to be and, a status quo that'll draw out for years with uh, you know furious rhetoric around it.
3: Well, it's exactly. And, you know, this is not that uncommon. Um, in, in, you know, in fact, the rhetoric on cyber espionage and its commercial applications has been around for quite a while. It's grown quite sharply over the last couple of years. I think we may well look back on, on, you know, yesterday's indictments as just, and um, the, the the wanted posters as just another incident in a, in a long and really fruitless campaign by the Americans to do something about it, about something they can't in the end stop. And, and sensible companies, companies who are, re- who, who, who make a genuine commercial decision that they have a lot to lose by their information being compromised uh, with being conveyed to Chinese competitors, are just going to have to work harder to protect their own information. And if that means standalone systems and highly secure sites, that's going to be the price of doing business.
0: Hugh White, thank you very much for your time.
3: That's my pleasure.
0: ANU professor Hugh White there wrapping up a pretty convincing sales pitch for the entire information security industry. Uh, I think that last quote belongs on a few slide decks, uh, personally. Okay, it is time for this week's sponsor interview now with Jack Daniel of Tenable Network Security. Risky Business is a sponsored podcast, and each week we let our sponsors come onto the podcast to discuss current events. Jack had an interesting idea for a chat this week. A a lot of people out there hate consumer-grade password managers, the ones that sort of you know, plug your passwords into forms and stuff for you. Uh, The idea of trusting some shoddily written app to look after all of your most valuable strings uh, seems a little bit horrifying to some. And, uh, you know, last year's news that Google Chrome kept passwords visible in its settings made a lot of people uncomfortable, uh, for example. And, you know, those passwords were actually stored encrypted, but it led to a bit of a perception problem and, and perhaps people are needlessly scared of password managers. But given password reuse has become such a massive, massive problem uh, now that household brands are having their databases dumped pretty much weekly, it might be time that we start to really encourage average users to install them. And as you'll hear, even if some of these password managers don't store passwords securely, we're still looking at a net gain in security because large-scale breaches are a bigger threat to the average user than malware-targeting password software. Here's what Jack Daniel had to say. It
4: seems to me that uh, password management uh, is something that we still haven't really worked out, and it's uh, just—it's a aid to some of the challenges we've got, especially as end users, where all we can do is uh, change our passwords and you know look—have I changed this since Heartbleed came out? Have I changed this since? Uh, when was the last time I changed, uh, you know, eBay or uh, PayPal passwords or whatever the the breach du jour is?
0: People in the information security world aren't exactly trusting of software that says, "Yeah, put all your passwords in here." But I, I guess there is some reasonably good stuff out there now, isn't there? I think so. I haven't done, and I'm not qualified
4: to do the, you know, the cryptanalysis of, of how well these systems work. But they've been hammered on for a while. And there's also a trade-off. I mean, there's it's rational for us to, as you said, you know, security folks, our mindset is as soon as somebody says trust us, we, uh, you know, the the hairs on our back of our neck go up and we don't trust them. And that's how we survive in this industry. But then we have to look at the trade-off. I mean, if we've got some vetted stuff that we think makes sense, um, is that better than, um, you know, Post-it notes? Is that better than, uh, especially for Uh, mobile users or typical end users if we can make it easier for them to have strong passwords that they can access without reusing uh, i think that makes everybody's life easier
0: Uh, well it does it does solve the password reuse problem doesn't it
4: it can And, and and that at this
0: stage seems to be a bigger problem than you know people's password managers getting owned off endpoints right Right. I
4: think I think that is a real challenge. There's certainly things that we can advise people to do. I mean, if you've got a environment, you don't worry about it and you've got a stationary computer and you want to leave things uh, logged into your password manager, even though the purist in me wants to scream at you and say, don't do that. It's like, yeah, you know, if you leave that desktop in your home where you aren't really worried about it logged in when the computer's on, I'm 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 okay. As long as uh, you know, when the machine boots up, you actually have a real password or something. It, mobile devices or you know laptops that actually hit the road, you know, yeah, log out of them. But it's it's the classic trade off of usability. But if we make it easier for people to do the right thing, we've got to decide what our environment is. But if we make it easier for people to do the right thing, and that comes with a security trade off. Uh, we can't just look at the exposure it gives us without considering uh, what gains we're getting from things like, uh, you know, a password manager.
0: Mm, it doesn't help that companies like Google were, you know, doing like clear text passwords in Chrome and stuff, right? No. <laughs> we, we we have enough challenges and people that should know better,
4: um, you know, like Google and Chrome have have had that, but... There are a lot of older systems out there, too, that still do clear text. Um, You know, we run into that all the time. That's one of the things that, uh, you know, like our passive tool looks for is, um, hey, there's a password flying by. That shouldn't be that way. Um, Mm. And so, uh, you know, what do you do with those? Um, Those are out of your control, but maybe you can uh, refresh them more often. Of course, uh, clear text passwords, you can't change fast enough to make a difference, but that's Mm. where you know two-factor auth comes in
0: yeah well i mean i was gonna say like you know we've been saying passwords are dead for like seven years and uh you know here's ebay which uses passwords i mean how long before it's going to be the new norm to go default for 2fa because we already have that for things like google facebook you know amazon right so so how long i mean are you kind of surprised that ebay doesn't have 2fa by default
4: yeah. And, you know, their affiliated company, PayPal, uh, has two-factor available, which they've had for a long time, but they make it really easy to bypass it. Every time you you hit that uh, PayPal, it says don't have your, uh, you know, your token and offers you a way around, the, around it. So uh, that's kind of frustrating. Uh, on that two-factor, telephone, you know, our mobile devices, especially if you're like me and cling to Android, just out of sheer stubbornness and stupidity. Uh, you know, they're really a challenge. But the flip side is, you know, I've been asked about BYOD security, which I'm really tired of talking about. But, you know, a lot of BYOD security comes down to stuff that we've known for a very long time. We forget all of it. But uh, one of the challenges that I issue to people is I, you know, was it a, in uh, at an event earlier this year and held up my phone and said, who wants to hijack one of my domains? You'll need this number here. Uh, as the Google Authenticator counted down for the domain registrar that I've got 2FA on. And it's like, oh, too late. It's gone now. So, I've, you know, I've got some spinning wheels on my Authenticator. I've got, uh, you know, a, a pile of text messages. When I'm at a conference, the text messages are, you know, me logging into MSDN, me logging into other live accounts, me logging into Google apps that aren't tied directly to Authenticator, you know, to keep track of things. Some of them are on Authenticator. Some of them require SMS you know so there are, that device even though it's not a corporate device is um one that I use for two factor a lot and I am much more likely to have it in my pocket than you know the the secure id token that I've been issued um because uh, you know it's just there it's part of it's part of what i have
0: yeah it it is you know and I mean, there's soft tokens on mobile devices are pretty, you know, you're thinking at some point they're going to be an easy target, uh, especially on platforms like Android. Although Android is getting a lot better, right? So I don't know. You know, I mean, I was even interviewing the guys from the, you know, the Verizon Data Breach Investigation Report. I was interviewing those guys about that. And I'm like, where is this BYOD getting? Why aren't people actually attacking mobile devices? I mean, there seems to be a bit of malware out there, but we haven't really seen too much mobile trickiness pop up. Uh, you know, in relation to some of these larger breaches, have we? No, there's certainly, you know, a lot of mobile malware, but what it's doing
4: um, to most people is not much, right? I mean, mm. there certainly is. Uh, it's, I see it kind of like IPv6. I hate to, you know, overplay. You and I have talked about that several times over the years. You know, the, 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 the possibility of using IPv6 as a, as a, you know, side channel within our own networks because we don't watch it but I never wanted to overstate that because until we see it in the wild, which is just beginning, it's not there. mobile devices. There's certainly some risk there, but if you look at the trade off, for example, of, you know, two factor, there's, you're always a little worried about something that you can lose easily. Um, But for now, I think the, I believe the balance is in the favor of the mobile device. You know, that soft token, I think that's uh, Mm. puts us ahead because it, uh, makes it easier to do the right thing. Um, you know, the idealist and, and uh, beardy Unix guy in me gets upset when I say that, but I've you know, we're dealing with people that are trying to do something other than be secure. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's that's it. Even those of us that work in the industry, we're trying to do something other than simply be secure. And if we have tools that give us a, a little bit of a trade-off, but let us move forward, then we should probably embrace those rather than be pedantic and owned.
0: So I guess, you know, just to recap, uh, you're saying that these days password managers are actually going to be doing a lot more good than harm. And, uh, you know, there's really no excuse for some of these larger-on brands not to be using soft tokens uh, or at least offering soft tokens on uh, standard smartphone platforms.
4: Yeah, I I, I believe that. I mean, uh, who knows? The rate of things happen in our industry. I could be, you know, by tomorrow morning really embarrassed for saying that on, on record. But you know, as it stands now, I think that uh, the trade-offs... Um, it just makes it, as I keep saying, makes it so much easier to do the right thing uh, that I think the, the direction to go is, is rely on two-factor and rely on password managers and uh, hope that people you know, are putting passphrases of some significance on their mobile devices, but still use the tools that are available that help people um, be more secure, uh, even if it comes with some risk.
0: Do you, do you think that uh, large online brands should perhaps be pushing the use of password managers? Do you think they should be saying, hey, you know, using one of these things so that you don't have to remember your passwords is actually a pretty good idea? They should be
4: pushing people. Uh, they should be educating people on ways to protect themselves better. Unfortunately, you know, they're, they're, it's going to come off as, you know, if you can't trust us. So you've got to take some responsibility for your own mm-hmm. information, which is a really hard sell to do. But uh, you know, if you if you pitched it properly, you could probably uh, word it. You know, you could get people that
0: you could uh, you could word it to trick the marketing team into actually doing the right thing. Right.
4: Right. Exactly. You could you could say you know the internet's a you know the internet is a dangerous place, and uh, even though. You know, here's, here's my spin. You can tell i spent more and more time with marketing folks. You know, the, the internet's a dangerous place and uh, not everybody treats your data with the respect that we do. So oh. here are some tips oh. for protecting yourself as our customer.
0: You know, it actually sounds like a message from eBay. <laughs> uh, it really does. Mate, thank you very much for joining us uh, with your thoughts on, uh, on, on what the masses should be doing to sort of mitigate some of these, uh, these large, large breaches. Thanks again. Thank you very much. Great talking to you as always. Jack Daniel from our sponsor, Tenable Network Security, there with a chat about passwords and stuff. Big thanks to Tenable Network Security for making this week's show possible. This week's feature track is an absolute killer, and it's called Think, and it's by the Australian band Mammal. If you haven't heard of these guys or heard them before, you are in for a real treat. Uh, They broke up back in 2009. Uh, but yeah, they've left us with some awesome tracks. Uh, the frontman from this band uh, is Ezekiel Ox, and he's currently ramping up his solo career. He's released one track called The Past, Present, and Future, and it's more of an Aussie hip hop vibe, but you can find it on SoundCloud. This track, mind you, you can find and should find on iTunes. That's it for this week's show. Until next week, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening.
2: Now I know what you're thinking. Two more years of this, I'm gonna chuck it in and move to an easier place. You're thinking two dollars a litre doesn't really look that far away, and you're thinking as you look at your ring finger, was that really the right decision? Oh yeah, yeah. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking if I'd just been given a chance to express myself, develop my inner guru, Then I could be that gorgeous tan blonde, 19 year old pouring sickly black holy water down my throat right now additional digital widescreen perfection. I know what you think, hey What you're thinking, you're thinking. If I could read, I'd make sense of that sign. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking if he said yes and then we said no and they went and did it anyway, then we must have no choice at all, right? Well, you're wrong. You gotta super up and walk tall. Yeah. You wanna get there? It's just not working, is it? Well, we know what you're thinking. You try to hide. Hey, n-